Litigation Psychology Podcast brought to you by Courtroom Sciences. I'm Dr. Bill Kanaski here with my very good friend and trucking attorney, Mike Bass in Dallas. Mike, how you doing? You know, I'm wearing my trucking hat that says MSM Trucking Company, Inc., Ben Wheeler, Texas, for this podcast. At least it doesn't say uh, safety is a top priority across the hat, Mike. Number one priority. <laughs> Mike, tell us a little bit about your role in the trucking industry, how you got into it, and about the types of cases that your firm handles over in Dallas. You bet. So I've been practicing 33 years. I started at a great firm here in Dallas, Coles and Thompson, a long time ago, and was initially put in the medical malpractice section and realized that was not my gig, and I wandered into another partner's office. Sorry to hear about it. Yeah, and I wandered into another partner's office, and he had a file sitting on the floor, and I said, what's that? He said, it's a trucking case. Do you want it? I said, sure. How hard can that be? And 33 years later, uh, that is about 60% of my practice is representing truck drivers, trucking companies, and transportation-related industries. Excellent, excellent. Well, as you know, I'm very active in the trucking and transportation industry as well. Um, I'd love your thoughts on some of the, and I know you have war stories, Mike. I know you have thousands Thousands. of stories, but um, one of the main one of the main challenges we have is when we get called in to help uh, prepare truck drivers specifically for testimony. A lot of them don't tell the truth. A lot of them don't like attorneys. A lot of them have been terminated or left the company and aren't exactly happy to be there. Tell me about your philosophy on how to prepare the truck driver for testimony and maybe some of the hurdles that you faced. Right. So I think really that that preparation starts day one, Bill. It doesn't start a week before the depot or a month before the depot. That starts day one. And that is the day that I get hired, I'm going to make contact with that driver And I'm going to say he because in my 33 years of doing this, I've represented two female drivers. So I'm going to make contact with that driver and I'm going to get to know him and I'm going to get to know his story because I'm not going to get the best out of that driver, Bill, if he doesn't trust me. He doesn't trust me. If he doesn't think I'm interested in him, he may have a great story to tell and I'm never going to hear it. So that's the first thing to do. And then you've got to listen to them and understand what is going on, what was going on at the time. Because oftentimes, at first blush, a case may appear to be one way, but then when I visit with my driver, I realize, you know what, that's a narrative we can sell. So I guess my takeaway at this minute is it starts day one, not 45 days before trial. By that point, the coloring's all gone, the puzzle's put away, it's, that thing is set in stone. Now, speaking of that, and I'm, I have no idea what the answer uh, to this question is, I'm just curious. Do your clients have a system to get you with the driver relatively quickly? Because I would imagine if there's a lot of delay, fear builds up, maybe even some resentment. Um, what, what, what do you think about the, the whole timing of that, particularly that first meeting? Yeah, perfect world, Bill. We're going to get a call and we're going to go to a hot scene. So we are going to be able to make contact with that driver right away. That is the best. That's the best way to do it. But that's a function of when the carrier gets notified or the client gets notified of the accident and when we get brought in. I just literally 30 minutes ago got done doing a, a webinar and one of the sections was investigating tractor trailer accidents. And I told him this, the early bird gets the worm. Yeah. You have got to set the narrative. You have got to take the fight to the plaintiff's lawyer. So I, I would like to get out there early. Now, if you can't, and it is a case that maybe sat around for a year and a half, Bill, and nothing was done. Still, you need to get in front of that driver as soon as you can. And that means 
I know this is odd in this pandemic time, going to see them because yeah. you they have got to they have got to know you respect what they do because if they don't think you respect them, Bill, they're never going to be on your team. That makes sense, <laughs> Mike. I'm not going to go into the causes of nuclear verdicts because we've had a lot of talks about that several podcasts. But rather, I'd like to I'd like your opinion on. Do you think the industry, the transportation and trucking industry, who has been really torpedoed and, 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 and hurt by these uh, very large nuclear verdicts, have they done enough as an industry to get on the same page to try to do something to prevent these things? Of course, you know, I look at the transportation industry sort of through a, a role and I just see what I see. But I can tell you this, the carriers and the clients we deal with I think there is room for improvement so that we can all change our paradigm. I don't think we need to play defense all the time. Yeah. I think we need to get out front and we need to be the one setting the narrative. So I think there's a lot of work that can be done, but I think a lot of it is, is that there's not a lot of cross communication between lawyers and carriers and transportation people and experts like you. And I think that needs to be facilitated somehow. We have talked about that extensively and a topic related to the nuclear verdicts, which is one of the key topics of this podcast is the whole concept, the psychological principle of anchoring. Very, very powerful. The plaintiff's bar has fully picked up on this. And Mike, there has, in 33 years, there had been a time when if a plaintiff attorney, a plaintiff attorney asked for 50, 75, $100 million, your entire office would have probably broken out in laughter like, come on, no reasonable jury in their mind is going to, like this guy's out of his mind. You're seeing it all the time now. And the psychological principle is that, okay, well, if I can get the jury locked in, anchored to a specific number and I can get them to not budge off that number, or if they do move, they move down, but maybe a little bit, I'm going to get a serious amount of money as plaintiff's counsel. How, have you seen the evolution of anchoring? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure, because it's happening in settlement negotiations now, where you're seeing maybe a $10 million case and they want 50, and they're doing the same thing. Can you talk about your experience with the evolution of some of these just absolutely obnoxious demands, both at settlement in front of juries? Yeah, so I think historically, plaintiff's lawyers were hesitant to get in front of a jury in opening statement and say, ladies and gentlemen, or really in jury selection, yeah. folks, I represent a family of four whose the patriarch was killed, and, and I just want you to know at the end of this case, I'm going to be looking to you to return a verdict and return justice in excess of $60 million. Who here is going to hold me to a higher standard in doing that? And now they've heard $60 million unapologetically. Yeah. Unapologetically, which means, which means that if it's a six person jury or a 12 person jury, all six or 12 of them are not going to be surprised when that lawyer gets up and says, I want 60 million bucks. So I have been, I have been on the receiving end of that whipping cord and it is not fun. I, I was in trial for a month in Dallas this year and the plaintiff's attorney stood up, very good plaintiff's attorney stood up and said, folks, I want you to know when you have heard all the evidence in this case, we are going to seek justice for our clients in excess of $55 million. Wow. And then went into who's got a problem with it. Tell me how you think about it. So by the time the jury got the, the case, that was not a surprise. 
earlier. I don't think plaintiff's lawyers did it, and I don't know why, but we do see it in settlement negotiations now where, you know, we, the industry, and by that, I mean the insurance industry, at the end of the day, Bill, I think they're better at evaluating cases than plaintiff's lawyers are because they've got more data. Yeah. They have got more data. And so if I'm representing a trucking company and I say, listen, I think your walkaway number on this is 10 million. I think that's what you're going to look at. You'll see plaintiff's lawyers starting at 100 million bucks. Yep. 100 million bucks. Knowing in their right mind they are never going to get that, but driving it, driving it, driving it upward so that you get an excess carrier that says, oh my God, let's pay 22 million because we're afraid of the case. Yeah, insane figures. I've also seen the opposite, Mike, and there's really not a, a term for this. Perhaps it's the reverse anchor is where um, during negotiations for settlement, plaintiff's counsel send you that email. I know you've gotten this email, Mike, and you know the email I'm talking about. I want $25 million or it's going up by $10 million in two weeks. And after two weeks, I'm going to withdraw my offer and I'll take it to the jury trying to really, really up the ante. What's been your experience with some of the nasty grams you received electronically? Or you mean the ones that say, listen, we will go to mediation only if you have the first three layers of the tower with $40 million at the table. Crazy. And, and so what I've said to plaintiff's lawyers is, okay, I'll tell you what, you have your people ready to take 10 bucks and bring them to the table. I'll bring 40 million bucks. And they'll say, well, that's ridiculous. My people are never going to pay 10 bucks. And I'll take 10 bucks. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> We're never paying you 40. <laughs> so... So you know, they want to put parameters on it. And at least in Texas, you can't tell people what to bring to the table. Wow. But we see it all the time. All I'm, the time. They, they like to bend rules, particularly the reptile folks. They're really good at that. Um, and something you and I have talked about offline extensively is, again, that amazing amount of communication between defense – or I'm sorry, plaintiff attorneys and some of the lack of communication between – defense attorneys. And, and Mike, I, I am not calling you old. I'm just saying you're older than me. <laughs> but has this been going on forever? This forever. defense? Really? There's forever. What, what, what? No, now there, there's a certain group of lawyers that I, that I deal with all the time and we share information, but industry-wide, no. Everybody thinks that they have the secret sauce and they're not willing to share it. At least that's been my impression. That's really interesting. Well, you and I, again, we have, we have talked so much. Uh, I really think as the industry, that really needs to change to get ahead because I think there are a lot of ideas uh, and thought sharing that are possible uh, that doesn't deal with the secret sauce. That would be very helpful to the actual industry. But like you said, I think um, the, the defense attorneys as a whole want to hide you know, what they're doing and keeping them to themselves. But I still think there is um, a way to do that, you know, whether that be through the industry meetings um, or, or, or just, you know, just being, being more open with, uh, you know, with, with your colleagues and, and people that you work with. Do you see that as the next step for the trucking industry would be communication and how important? Yeah, I think, we, I think when I say we as defense lawyers have to be much more open with sharing information and ideas and tactics because at the end of the day, we're there to, we are there to represent our clients. And my thought has always been, if I put the client's interest first, 
and do good work, everything else will take care of itself. That, that's, a, that's a very good point. So 33 years is a long time. How have you seen um, plaintiff attorney advertising, particularly against the trucking industry, how that's evolved over the last few decades? Because I remember the days, and the plaintiff attorney billboards are always up there. But now you see them on key stretches of interstate where it's, we are, we are trucking attorneys. We are plaintiff trucking attorneys. If you've had an incident with the truck, please call us. Has that just multiplied across the country and particularly in your area? Oh, yeah. Well, as you know, Texas has three major highways that run through it. I-10, well, 10, 20, 30, and 40 up in the panhandle. So we have a lot of truck traffic. And yes, we have seen more and more of it. Some of the best ads... If you want to see them, just Google Texas Truck Wreck Lawyer. Some of them are pretty amazingly funny, and they are out there, and they are going, and they are going after after trucking companies. And like I've told my folks, think about it. If you are a plaintiff's lawyer, and you've got three cases on your docket, and one involves horrific injuries and somebody that's got a $30,000 policy, and one that's got medium injuries that has 100 or one that's got potential injuries, but five million in coverage, guess where you're gonna fish? Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna fish where the coverage is. Yeah. yeah. We're seeing it a lot. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, something, and I've interviewed several people for the podcast from the, the, the trucking industry, and the one topic we um, have discussed a lot is the, the very recent, but I, I would really think is now tapering, the very recent, very positive public PR, you know, that, that we've been seeing the, the positivity towards the trucking industry. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem I've seen in the last six weeks is that's come down and the healthcare yeah. folks have tripled theirs. And right. then a lot of companies on their commercials have piggybacked. I don't know if you've noticed this, but companies that don't, I saw one today. It was a commercial on TV uh, in between a news break, and it was a financial services company. Mike, they handle money. They, they, handle, they handle your 401k. And of the, of the one minute of the commercial, 45 seconds of it was, we're praising the heroes on the front lines and those doctors and those nurses and healthcare professionals and blah, 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 blah. Oh, by the way, come hire us to hire your 401k. That was the entire commercial. It had nothing to do with them or their services. What can or should or will, I guess, the industry do to try to capitalize off of this moment in time, which we have really never seen before, to try to maintain and increase the level of positivity because you're going up against a marketing advertising machine and the plaintiff's bar. What are your thoughts? Well, I think what everybody in the transportation industry needs to remember is this. Transportation, trucking brings about, moves about 70% of the freight in the United States. Okay? They did it. They did it before COVID. They're doing it now and they're going to do it afterwards. So we continue to do the same thing that we do. And I think that we need to continue to say that there are professionals out there that are doing a job that are bringing stuff to all of us. And I'm with you and we've talked about it before offline. In America, unfortunately, we have this what have you done for me lately mentality. And yeah, while while truck drivers delivering groceries and delivering diapers and stuff was a really feel-good moment for a while, my fear is now that there are people that are, you know, flipping truck drivers off and 
and getting mad at them because they're parked out in the street delivering groceries and someone's now trying to get back to work. How I think you fix it is I think you start at the state level and work with your local uh, trucking association to get the word out there because it's a great message. It is a great message and it's an easy one to sell. You and I've talked about this. Plaintiff's lawyers have a naturally built-in narrative. You know, mother of the family dies in tragic accident, child taken from parents too soon, father crippled. Those are narratives that sell. We have to come in and say, here's a 30-year truck driver who has done nothing but dedicate his life to delivering freight for people who unfortunately had someone pull out in front of him. I like that narrative. Why don't we sell that narrative? <laughs> I, I think my uh, my teenager could get in front of a jury and uh, and put on and put on that case. Uh, well, I had a I had a younger plaintiff's lawyer say to me about a week ago. We were kind of tussling during a deposition over reptile questions, and he kind of made the comment, "You know, if we take this case to trial, we're just going to whip your ass." And I said, "God, with the facts you have, I hope you can. I could I could win this case." Wow. Yeah, and let's 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 end on that note with kind of a, a little bit, a couple of other questions about reptile. Do do your clients understand how dangerous this is? Because I tell you what, over the last ten years, not until recently, but especially in the first five years of this movement, which by the way is pretty much the only thing that the plaintiffs bar is going to right now. I can't tell you how many claims people or in-house people when the the concept of reptile came up. They laughed it off. They called it a sham. Oh, this is, this is just another golden rule. You think clients are finally getting it now because, man, they've, they've been doing some serious damage um, in that deliberation room. Yeah, I think if once, once a carrier or a client has been touched by the fire, they're true believers. But I can tell you, interestingly enough, there are oftentimes where I'll be talking at a seminar and say, okay, let's talk about the reptile theory. Who here has not heard about it? And I'm going to say there's 25% of the people out there that have not heard about it. Right. But the 75% who have, I think they're sort of evenly split. There's, those are the people that are like, we need to get on it early, and we need to really work with our drivers. And then some who say, well, we'll just let our lawyers deal with it. That's been my experience. Yeah. And then finally, um, again, in my experience with dealing with this reptile thing for now the, what, 10th year, is a lot of this, well, I'll just file a motion and eliminate to get rid of this. If you're, well, A, the likelihood, I think the hit rate on those is maybe two out of 10, but would you ever rely on a judge to protect you? I mean, isn't that kind of a losing strategy? Well, it's certainly not, let me tell you, it's certainly not the hill I would want to die on. If that's my last defense's trial is to count on a judge to help me out, well, maybe that's my only strategy. I don't think that would be the best one. I think you have to take the battle to them and I will tell you, I, I was in a deposition till seven o'clock on last Thursday night. My corporate rep was being questioned heavily on the reptile and had been coached well and taught well and had attended uh, one of y'all's seminars at their national uh, offices up in the Northeast and really understood the process and was standing tall. And this lawyer lost his mind. <laughs> and kept saying, Mr. Smith, it is a yes or a no yes. question. Well, and no, the guy no. said, you know, I wish I could answer you, but it's, it's not because it depends on a lot of things. And so when we got done and I was talking with my corporate rep on the phone, I said, the fact that that guy went 
off the rails tells me you were doing exactly what you needed to do. But you had you need someone, Bill, that can stand up and take the punches in the nose. Well, the good thing is the training program we have for this um, essentially precisely trains that witness to take those punches in the nose. In fact, I punch him in the nose. You will punch him in the nose. They'll get used to the punches, but then they learn how to sustain those punches if they do get hit, dodge those punches when some of those, you know, real unfair questions come out. And again, Reptile has been very, very beatable if and only if you get that early start and you're very aggressive. You start preparing for Reptile three months before trial. I mean, and all the depths are in the can. I mean, what are you going to do? There's not a whole. Oh, I mean, at that point, the die is cast. I mean, you're stuck. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Mike Bassett, thank you so much for your time. Uh, take care and be safe uh, there in Dallas. And I'm sure we're going to be doing this again because things are moving very quickly in the industry and we're going to need updates from you. Very good. Bill, thanks for all your time. Stay safe in Florida. Thank you. Take care, Mike.